Do you ever wonder where all your money went? Like every single time you look at your bank account? Honestly, it's probably all those subscriptions. I felt that way too, until I got Rocket Money. Rocket Money helped me see all the subscriptions I'm paying for, and it was eye-opening. Between streaming services, fitness apps, delivery services, it all adds up so quickly. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. An epic matchup between your two favorite teams, and you're at the game getting the most from what it means to be here with American Express. You breeze through the card member entrance, stop by the lounge. Now it's almost tip-off, and everyone's already on their feet. This is going to be good. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your live sports experience at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Eligible American Express card required. Benefits vary by card and by venue. Terms apply. In celebration of Black History Month, Disney has announced it will be holding free screenings of Black Panther throughout the first week of February. And in celebration of White History Months, Friends will be re-airing on TBS until the end of time. From 30 Rockefeller Plaza in New York City, please enjoy this podcast edition of Late Night with Seth Meyers. On today's show, Seth has interviews with Senator Sherrod Brown of Ohio and former Senator Claire McCaskill of Missouri. Both Brown and McCaskill also give bonus backstage interviews exclusive for this Late Night podcast. But first, a closer look. It's not often that a single event sums up an entire presidency, but on Friday we got one that came pretty close. Remember, Trump brags that he only hires the best people, calls the Russia investigation a hoax, calls CNN fake news, and his government shutdown left FBI agents without pay. So it was especially ironic when one of Trump's closest associates was arrested by unpaid FBI agents working for the special counsel on the Russia investigation, and the whole thing was caught on tape by CNN. <laughs> the only way... The only way that could have been more humiliating for Trump is if Robert Mueller celebrated by eating a Happy Meal at McDonald's on a date with Stormy Daniels. <laughs> and you know, when Trump first heard about the arrest, he was furious to find out that the FBI hadn't also been shut down. What? I thought there were no laws during the shutdown, like in that movie, The Purge. <laughs> when do I get my purge? When, in fact, the FBI was affected by the shutdown, but that didn't stop them from making the arrest. These FBI agents making this arrest of Roger Stone in Fort Lauderdale this morning, like every other FBI agent, they're not being paid right now. 800,000 federal workers begin missing their second paycheck this week. Wow, imagine being such an ass that FBI agents will come into work and arrest you for free. <laughs> If you think I'm coming in, oh, Roger Stone, yeah, on my way. <laughs> and somehow the day managed to get even more humiliating for Trump because just a few hours later, Trump was forced to cave on the signature promise of his campaign and reopen the government without money for his border wall. After 35 days of subjecting millions of people to needless suffering and pain, Trump gave up. And he did it in true Trump fashion by rambling aimlessly about walls. Walls work. They do work. No matter where you go, they work. We have barriers 
At the border, where natural structures are as good as anything that we can build. They're already there. They've been there for millions of years. Last year alone, ICE officers removed 10,000 known or suspected gang members, like MS-13 and members as bad as them. Horrible people. Tough, mean, sadistic. Think of that. We apprehended 60,000 people. That's like a stadium full of people. A big stadium. Man, even right after suffering a humiliating defeat, he still talks like the guy in front of me in line at the pharmacy. <laughs> wow, a whole stadium, huh? Cool. Hey, um, they're calling you. They have your pills. <laughs> and because the speech made no sense, Trump later had to follow up on Twitter and insist that even though he caved without getting anything he wanted, he had actually won. The president wrote, quote, I wish people would read or listen to my words on the border wall. This was in no way a concession. Yeah, we did listen. You said suspected. <laughs> we were listening. Also, if you have to tell people it wasn't a concession, then it was definitely a concession. It's like that time Custer wrote home from Little Bighorn, this was in no way my last stand. <laughs> so Trump caved after 35 days, got nothing. You gotta give credit to the air traffic controllers, flight attendants, TSA screeners, and custom agents who showed the power of labor solidarity. And you gotta give credit to House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, who held out long enough and kept her caucus together. Meanwhile, Republicans spent the last few days of the shutdown at each other's throats. Frustration is growing among Republicans on Capitol Hill, and we quote, Republican senators clashed with one another and confronted Vice President Pence inside a private luncheon on Thursday as anger hit a boiling point over the longest government shutdown in history. This is your fault, Senator Ron Johnson told Majority Leader Mitch McConnell at one point, according to two Republicans who attended the lunch and witnessed the exchange. Are you suggesting I'm enjoying this? McConnell snapped back. First of all, Mitch McConnell doesn't enjoy anything. <laughs> I think at the very most, he has a rudimentary nervous system that allows him to respond to light and heat. <laughs> Enjoyment is beyond him. Here he is in a bounty house. And here's Mitch McConnell doing a cannonball. Second, it's all of your fault. You could have ended the shutdown at any time, but you subjected millions of people to needless misery for a president who lied and a wall that won't work. In other words, you're all horrible people. So the shutdown gave us more evidence that Trump is not the master dealmaker he claimed to be, and the indictment of Stone, who's been one of his closest associates, gave us more evidence that he does not, in fact, hire the best people. Now, if you're not familiar with Roger Stone, he's the third one. He's also a longtime political dirty trickster known for his shady tactics and his bizarre outfits. This is his actual outfit from the inauguration, and by far the best thing about his arrest is we can make fun of this picture again. I mean, look at that. Did Quentin Tarantino remake Lincoln? I didn't know Downton Abbey had a pimp. If he weren't a political consultant, he'd be the world's oldest chimney sweep. He looks like he got kicked out of the Magic Castle for vaping. <laughs> Mueller arrested him on seven counts of perjury and five counts of looking like Teddy Roosevelt's deadbeat dad. <laughs> by the way, that isn't even the only insane outfit he's worn. Look at all these. These look like headshots from the poster of a one-man show called My Mother's Italian, My Father's Jewish, and I'm in Jail. Stone got his start in politics working for both of Richard Nixon's presidential campaigns, and he loves Nixon so much he famously has Nixon's face tattooed on his back. Although it's equally possible that the tattoo just burned itself into his skin while he was sleeping. 
You have the mark! And after Stone left the courthouse on Friday, he celebrated his political hero by doing the Nixon victory pose for the cameras. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, didn't Nixon resign in disgrace? Maybe that's not the best pose to show your innocence. <laughs> but Stone doesn't remember that because he spent most of the 70s traveling the world in a glass elevator he stole from Willy Wonka. <laughs> and if I were Stone, I'd be afraid of the parallels because Nixon's presidency ended in part over charges that he obstructed justice and the indictment against Stone alleges that he was very intent on interfering in Mueller's investigation. For example, Stone sent an email to a guy named Randy Credico, a radio host who allegedly acted as an intermediary with WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange. And in that email, Stone tried to get Credico to lie by citing a character from The Godfather as an example to follow. The special counsel also indicted Stone for witness tampering. This for allegedly attempting to sway radio host Randy Credico, allegedly a go-between with Assange, before Credico testified to Congress. The indictment alleges that Stone said Credico, quote, should do a Frank Pentangeli, referring to a character in The Godfather Part Two who lied to Congress. That's right. Stone literally told a witness to do a Frank Pentangeli, a character in The Godfather who lies to Congress. This guy was basically begging to be arrested. I mean, he imitates Richard Nixon, he quotes from The Godfather, and he dresses like Hannibal Lecter. <laughs> but Stone's email to Credico got weirder. Stone allegedly threatened Credico in an attempt to keep him quiet during the investigation. And at one point, according to the indictment, Stone even suggested he would steal Credico's therapy dog. According to an email included in the indictment, Stone also said he would take that dog away from you. Man, it really doesn't help your case when you make the same threats as the Wicked Witch of the West. <laughs> he actually threatened to steal the guy's dog. How much more of a villain can you be? I'll steal that dog of yours, and then it's off to Monte Carlo and my auto gyro! <laughs> That's it. That was the last one about his outfit. And yet, even after threatening another guy's dog, Stone had the audacity to complain about the FBI's treatment of him in a courthouse press conference on Friday. This morning, uh, at the crack of dawn, 29 FBI agents arrived at my home with 17 vehicles with their lights flashing uh, when they could simply have contacted my attorneys, and I would have been more than willing to surrender voluntarily. Uh, they terrorized my wife my dogs. Oh, now you're worried about dogs? <laughs> well, I hate to break it to you, buddy, but when they heard you threaten one of them, they flipped on you. <laughs> it's clear. <laughs> it's clear what's going on here. Stone is obviously angling for a pardon from Trump who has shown a willingness to praise witnesses who refuse to cooperate and attack those who do. And to get that pardon, Stone has been going on TV complaining about the FBI and the media to win Trump's favor, like in this interview he did on Fox News Friday. It's disconcerting that CNN was aware that I would be arrested before my lawyers were uh, informed. Uh, so that's disturbing. Uh, if it was a dangerous situation, which would merit the SWAT team, well, then CNN's cameraman would be in danger. I'm not a flight risk. In fact, I, I think my passport has expired, or it will expire in a few days. That's silly. You don't need a passport to travel via magic umbrella. <laughs> I lied. That was the last one. <laughs> one after another, the president's closest associates are being indicted or going to jail. Trump says he only hires the best, but Sohn's indictment is more proof that Trump surrounds himself with... Horrible people. This has been a closer look.
is a former two-term senator from Missouri. She is now a political analyst for NBC News. Please welcome to the show Claire McCaskill, everyone. Claire. You. you served two terms. You had a hard-fought election. Uh, you ultimately did not win re-election. Uh, and yet, I was even saying to you backstage, you look, uh, you have a lot more light uh, to yourself than most sitting senators do when they come <laughs> on this show. Um, you seem optimistic. Are people surprised by that? Like, when people come up to you and talk about your election loss, uh, what is their energy? Well, usually it's like I've died. <laughs> you know, or a little bit like maybe I've, you know, when I got divorced many years ago, people don't know exactly what to say. I find myself consoling them. Uh-huh. It's gonna be okay. <laughs> Life goes on. It was an election. Um, you know, it's a rough time in our country. Mm-hmm. I, uh, we all know that. But I am strangely optimistic that we've turned the corner. I yep. think things are going much better. I think people are figuring out that the guy in the Oval Office maybe has a little bit of con in him. <laughs> yeah, I think that's uh, that's going to I, You know, we had uh, uh, Senator uh, Sherrod Brown was here last night from Ohio, and he was talking about meeting with Trump uh, you know, it was about uh, layoffs in Ohio, and he said you realize when you sit down with him that he is not a policy guy. Did you find that in your meetings with the president? Well, my first meeting with the president, it was a little bizarre because I was asked to come over to the White House about the tax bill, and I walked in the cabinet room, and they always have name tags around, and I expected to be far away from the president because there were a lot of Republicans there. I look over, my name tag is right next to his chair, and I'm going, oh, <laughs> um, so I walk over there, and he comes out, introduces himself. He's very nice. And he says, let me get the chair for you, Senator. It's very heavy. And he pulls the chair out, and I sit down, and then he leans down and whispers in my ear, I bet no other president has ever done that before. <laughs> it's like, you can't make this stuff yeah. up. It is just beyond bizarre. Yeah, it's weird. Yeah. It's very weird. <laughs> It's, it's very, very weird. You, uh, you, I, I know there were senators that, uh, from the other side of the aisle, as a moderate that you worked with, you had success with some of your Republican colleagues. Uh, there were others that, uh, you, uh, did not have as kind of words for. You r- referred to the embarrassing uncles in the Senate, uh, sort of on your way out, in particular Mitch McConnell. Uh, do you have anything, uh, kind thoughts for Mitch McConnell now or, or the job he's doing? No. Okay. Um, <laughs> So here's the deal. You know, there's lots of people in the Senate that get a bad reputation. And I want to reassure people, you know, it's not that bad. They're really nice guys. Uh, You know, they may come off a little cold. Not really true with him. Um, You know, he really is kind of... I mean, I was in the Senate 12 years, and I think he said four things, sentences to me. Uh And that was three of them were when I went to see him in his office. Obviously not a scintillating conversation. And those sentences were, what are you doing here? (laughs) His job, he sees his job, Seth, um, in a way that's really depressing to me because he sees his job as only to protect Republican senators and to protect a Republican majority. He is very political in the most political of places. Mm -hmm. No one is more political. I don't know what he really cares about other than holding on to his job. Do you look at it and say, wow, he is coldly effective? Do you have sort of a professional respect for the fact that why it doesn't, with no sort of moral compass, he has accomplished what he has? For no, the absolutely, I do. And I remember when he said 
um, before I think they'd even moved Justice Scalia's body. Yeah. Uh, he said, we will not confirm a Supreme Court. And I said, you know, well, he can't get away with that. There's this Constitution. Yeah. You know, the Constitution doesn't say you may. It says you shall. And I was really, um, frankly, naive at how far he would go uh, when he did that with Merrick Garland. Um, and by the way, it probably did have an impact on the presidential election. For a lot of evangelical voters in my state that maybe didn't see Trump as a role model for their children, they were convinced he'd put people on the Supreme Court they liked. And that was really because of Mitch McConnell's strategy. Yeah. Uh, I want to ask about this. Ellie just started on Instagram. She's not great, but yeah. you... Um... <laughs> You were the first senator to go on Twitter. I think I was. That is oh, really impressive. A long uh, time ago. <laughs> you started, uh, you came out of the gates hot with uh, Tell Me If This Works. Yeah. <laughs> I really like this. Uh, this is right out of the way. I'm thinking about Twittering <gasps> during all of the hoopla over the next couple of days. What do you think? Oh. Uh, this was for the uh, inauguration. Of uh, President Obama. This is President Obama's. Yeah. And, uh, Those you, were the good old days. Yeah, by the way. and I should say, like this way, like it was, uh, it was the good old days. You were happy, but you still uh, pointed out during the inauguration, "Am I too old or what?" At a great celebration for the inauguration, but the music is so loud. <laughs> You're very, good. very honest. You're good. You, you know, you ran as a moderate in your state. Uh, it was a tough election for some moderate Democrats. Some other progressive Democrats uh, also uh, had tough nights on, on election night. It did seem like a more progressive wave, but you have always governed from the idea of from the middle out. What do you think? Where is the current Democratic Party? And is it that important to decide between are we a party of moderates or party progressives, or is it that can I both exist? I don't really think there's that big of differences. And I, I mean, I kind of agree. Sherrod says this, and I think other candidates who are smart will say this. Um, we agree on almost everything. And it isn't, and a lot of the people who took seats in the House that gave the speakership to Nancy Pelosi, they beat Republicans not big with pragmatic progressive ideas, not, you know, things maybe that were not going to resonate as much in a district that could elect either party. And that's the only point I've tried to make, is everyone needs to be patient with Democrats who come from places where it's not as blue as... Um, Manhattan. Yes. <laughs> We're pretty blue. Yeah. Uh, uh, student loans are obviously something that we talk about all the time. And I think for a younger generation, it is something that is, a, a, you know, can be a burden for, for years in your adulthood. Uh, you paid yours off in a very unique way. You went on the Alex Trebek hosted High Rollers. Look at that. Yeah. Look at Alex Trebek. Alex Trebek looks fantastic. First of all, he looks very young, which means I'm pretty old. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm really pretty old. But um, you went on a game show. Yeah, I actually decided that my first vacation as a young lawyer, I would go out and sleep on the couch of a girlfriend of mine, a sorority sister of mine from college that was living in L.A., and I timed my vacation when they were taping game shows. So I spent every day going around L.A. auditioning for game shows. On the third day, I hit high rollers. <laughs> And I got on the game show, and I was the champion for three days and won, like, $36,000 and was able to pay off yeah. the loan. Yeah! And I mean... $36,000 when Alex Trebek looked like that is no small chunk <laughs> of change. Money. Yeah. It was real money. Hey, thank you so much for being here. Uh, it's just a pleasure. Thank you. Thank hey, this is Henry from Late Night. I'm here with Claire McCaskill from Missouri. It is such a pleasure to have you here. Thank you for doing the show. Thanks, Henry. It's been great fun. You were honestly one of the funniest politicians we've had on the show. It, well, I, I think that's a low bar. 
I will say it. <laughs> it can be uh, without naming names. Yeah. Do you find your colleagues funny though? Oh I, yeah. Um, there are really there are some very funny people in the, in the Senate. Um, yeah. Amy Klobuchar has a great sense of humor. She's been uh, here. She was very funny. Here. Yeah. 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 And, and 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 others. Um. You know, John Tester is a funny guy. Mm-hmm. One of my best friends. And um. So there is humor there. Yeah. You have to you kind of have like it. gallows humor sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Because the place is so dysfunctional, but. It, it is you have to laugh or you cry you mentioned dysfunction we from the outside we talk about dysfunction a lot in in the senate what does it look like day to day and how would it get more dysfunctional in your 12 years there yeah well i think the biggest problem we have is we can't tackle the big stuff mm-hmm. the leader of the republican party now really wants to protect his members from any really controversial votes and you can't solve tough problems without taking tough votes so we are pretty good at working together on some of the small stuff mm-hmm. you know you know like the opioid bill which is not a small thing but it's not controversial right everyone agrees opioids are bad and we need mm-hmm. to do things to help people uh, but you get to things like immigration reform and health care and the stuff you know how we reduce the cost of college all of those things become controversial and we're not willing to kind of step up and go okay we got to grit our teeth and take mm-hmm. votes that are going to be unpopular to get to a place we can agree and actually move the needle. That's the biggest problem with the place right now. Behind the scenes, are there channels of communication to have that bipartisan dialogue or even those kind of stopped now from happening in, in the Senate? There's still some of that going on. It, mm-hmm. it especially happens at times like this when everyone's beginning to feel anxious about the government being shut down and how it reflects on them and their service. Um, And it goes on all the time in committee work. But much of the power now uh, resides in the offices of the leaders. Yeah. And uh, things are worked out there and bills are written there. And that's not the way it always was. The first year I was in the Senate, I think we voted on 306 amendments. And the last year I was in the Senate, we voted on less than 40. So a lot less debate, a lot less public discussion about the stuff that we're putting together for the country. Right. So your former colleague, Senator Sherrod Brown, was here last night. He is thinking about running for president. You mentioned Senator Amy Klobuchar. She's thinking about running for president. There are a lot of people who've already announced, Kamala Harris, uh, Elizabeth Warren, Kirsten Gillibrand. What is it like knowing these people running for president? How do you view the, the 2020 primary? Because they're not only candidates, they're friends. It's hard. Yeah, I can it's imagine it's hard. It's a little like, like picking between my kids. Yeah. <laughs> you know, which one's your favorite? Come on, mom. Which one's your favorite? You're all my favorites, kids. Right. That's what you have to say. Um, right. Kind of. Um, and I think time will tell. Mm-hmm. Uh, people will wash out early. This is a very large field. Like 100 people running. Yeah. And, you know, there will be um, people who will compete. And make the top three in the first mm-hmm. three or four states. And then the rest of the field will have difficulty, I think. Somebody is going to inspire people. Yeah. One of the things that's going to be different in this presidential election that I urge people to watch is low-dollar donations. Mm-hmm. Um, it is a new way of sensing someone's strength at the grassroots level. We didn't have that. Uh, mm-hmm. Even, um, you know, four years ago, we didn't have it like we're going to have it in 2020, mm-hmm. where, you know, you look at Beto. Yeah. He raised $80 million yeah. without taking corporate PAC checks. Right. All, or, or PAC money. Or PAC money, yeah. period. All, you know, just in small dollar donations. Mm-hmm. Well, that's pretty impressive. I mean, that's like presidential. So yeah. if you have candidates that can do that, they're the ones that I think are going to have the staying power. When you were running for Senate, how much of your time was fundraising? Because a lot of emails, a lot, a lot of emails. Yeah, sorry. Out, and then uh, just, yeah. uh, I know just fundraisers. And it just seems like that is part of the job when you're in the job and then when you're out on the road too. Well, the last two years of your Senate term are in fact campaigns. And so you yeah. travel when you're not in the Senate, mm-hmm. you travel raising money. 
It did change, however, this time for me because we had 280,000 contributors. I mean, I was a moderate from the Midwest, mm-hmm. um, admittedly in a tough state, so people wanted to help. Yeah. But my average contribution was 51 bucks. Really? That, frankly, is amazing. I yeah. mean, we are going to have that now. I think it's our hope for cleaning up campaigns is that the way you get big money out of politics is to get a lot of little money in it. That's really interesting. Yeah, and it seems like just having candidates pledge to not take corporate PAC money, it seems like that's kind of now like a, a litmus test of these 2020 candidates. I don't like know everyone. about Yeah, I get that. I know that is, but um, that is saying that because I took corporate PAC money, I wasn't, I mean, all you have to do is look at my record. I went mm-hmm. after the pharmaceutical industry with teeth bared. I went after General Motors with teeth bared. Mm-hmm. I went after a lot of very powerful corporations in this country, and I took corporate PAC money. Uh-huh. So I get it that that's something people are talking about, but I hope people don't think that should be a litmus test because what you're basically saying is anybody who takes a corporate check is owned by them. Mm-hmm. And I just don't think that's fair, and, and I really don't think it's true. It may be true for some people, mm-hmm. but it's not true for most people. Are you then surprised to see that uh, that's kind of the first thing many of these candidates are saying? It seems like they're launching their campaign mentioning that kind of fact. Is that surprising to you that it's this early on that's already become kind of a marker people are kind of putting down? No, it doesn't surprise me because I think mm-hmm. it resonates with people. I think there is a sense the system's rigged and that the mm-hmm. big powerful corporations have way more power than they do. I've seen, you know, corporations brought to their knees mm-hmm. um, in Washington. We don't do it often enough. But usually that's because Republicans are protecting them, not because Democrats took corporate PAC checks. <laughs> We're talking about the 2020 race. As you mentioned, many female senators are running. What was it like for you entering the Senate as a female senator and then seeing those numbers grow? I mean, not we're not anywhere near 50-50, but what, what was it like? Because I know early on you were you were there when the women's bathroom grew in size. Yeah, right? I can always tell my grandchildren I was there when we had to make the girls' bathroom bigger. <laughs> um, it was too small. Uh, because we had gotten enough women that this is the bathroom right off the floor. Mm-hmm. So when we're voting and you can't go far from the floor, you know, it is the bathroom that we must use. And historically, it was not even there uh, back in the day when Barbara Mikulski and Nancy Linda Kassebaum were Democratic senators in the early 90s. Uh, and so it had to be expanded. So we had to steal space from another room and maybe a little space from the men's. Mm-hmm. And now it's a big bathroom and we've got room to expand. We're at 25 in mm-hmm. the United States Senate. The place won't work right until we probably get over 50. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. <laughs> there are 25 female senators now. You guys have a bowling league. I, I saw you post on Instagram at some point. Where do you go bowling? Is it Well, it was just a party. Oh, that was just one event. Um, it was okay. one event, and it was in the White House. Oh, uh, During the Obama years, yeah. um, we put together. The, the women try to get together on a bipartisan basis, uh-huh. and um, we say what happens while we eat salad stays where we eat salad. Just us, uh-huh. no staff. Uh, everything off the record where we can kind of, you know, really uh, let down our hair and say what we feel like saying. And one of those events we did at the White House bowling alley and whoever was in charge for that one had shirts made for us. Mm -hmm. And they all had really funny names for every senator that I will not repeat here. Will you say (laughs) yours or not even, I don't want to put you on the spot. Honestly, I can't remember (laughs) mine. Okay. I think it was boss woman or something, (laughs) something to say that I was uh, bossy, I think. Boss woman. Well, uh, with all due respect, boss woman. And I say that in, in, in the nicest, best, uh, best way I can. Uh, Thank you so much for being here. And thank you for doing the podcast. It It was such a pleasure to meet you. Thank you so much. Thank you. senior United States Senator from Ohio. Please welcome to the show, Senator Sherrod Brown, everyone. 
happy to have you here. Thank you. you won a re-election uh, by seven points in a state, Ohio, that is trending uh, red. Uh, certainly in the other elections within your state, and but you were being sort of not just a progressive uh, a, a politician, but one that is often being described as not looking like a politician. Do you celebrate that about uh, yourself? I know we're talking about Hugh Jackman, I get that, yeah. but what's this not looking well, like? Well, I just want to read okay, you some okay, adjectives okay, okay, that have been right, used right, to describe right. you. Unvarnished. Unvarnished. Unpolished. That's a good, that's a good one. Unpolished okay. is okay. You okay. Gritty. Gritty. I, I go with that. Al always disheveled. <laughs> Radi radiates rumpledness. No, you made that one up. No, it's no, real. Nobody ever wrote radiate. I don't radiate, first of all. <laughs> well, someone else, called, well, my, my... someone else called you Mr. Uncharisma. In an article that was positive. Well, I, you know, you're not like you, Donald Trump charisma. I mean, you're looking for something different. Yeah, right? that's okay. true. That is the counterbalance. Well, to... I, I, I operate under this. I, if, if, if I start to look, if my hair starts to look worse than Bernie Sanders, it's time for a haircut. <laughs> yeah. And so I just kind of figured that. Well, so, you did. Uh, so... I want to. Your hair is uh, is actually such a local so, story. So you said this was going to be a substantive discussion. This right? is we're going to okay, be okay, substantive. Good. But I do want to point out that. Uh, <laughs> You got. You recently did get a haircut. I, I and then it was reported on by the AP, the Columbus Dispatch, and Cleveland.com. It was a big deal. Uh, Sherrod Brown gets presidential haircut. Meet the man who tries to tame Sherrod Brown's unruly hair. It was a slow news day. It was a slow news. But I want to tell you about now. Any of you that stopped through Cleveland, there's a there's a barber in Garfield Heights named Carlo. And Carlo, at the age of Carlo's in his 70s, he's one of these guys that you really see him as kind of the dignity of work. He's cut hair for 50 years. He came to this country at the age of 10. He had never been out of his village in Italy. He, his family took, I guess, a bus or something many years ago when he was 10 to Genoa to get on a ship to come to the United States. And he remembers taking that ship through the Straits of Gibraltar. He remembers looking at that. Think about that. And then he ends up, his, his, I think his uncle was in Cleveland working in a brickyard, and he will say, I won the lottery because I've gotten to live in the United States for 50 years. It's fantastic. And he's still and working, and, and, he my, and he cuts and my hair. And a hell of a haircut. So you got to love Carla. You, you mentioned uh, Dignity of Work. You are right now on a Dignity of Work tour. Uh, I would like to note that a lot of the places you're going are, are sort of early primary states. Should we take anything from that? Uh, well, I, my wife and I are thinking about about a campaign for president, and I, um, I, you know, I too, too many Democrats look at I think the electorate as either campaign to pro to the progressive base or you campaign and talk to working class voters. You've got to do both. You've got to do both to win the heartland. And you know, it, it really is. I mean, if if nothing comes, if we decide not to do this and it's going to be a joint decision with my wife, Connie Schultz and me after we do this dignity of work listening tour, um, I'm hopeful that whoever the Democratic candidate is will will put work at the center of their campaign. That that too many too many single parents struggle with the cost of or, or married parents struggle with the cost of childcare. People are working harder than ever before. They don't feel. I mean, you work hard, you ought to be able to get ahead. And if you you love your country, you fight for the people who make it work. And that's you know that's whether you punch a clock or swipe a badge or whether you're working for tips or whether you're on salary or whether you're raising kids or caring for an aging parent. And I don't think policymakers, I, I know the White House now, to most people, looks like a retreat for Wall Street executives. And people, the, the, the White House and the Congress, I mean, look at this awful government shutdown are not thinking about these workers in these communities that are hit so hard. You, because you, absolutely, you, 
obviously, this is a message that uh, resonated in, again, as I said, a state that's getting redder in election results. You win uh, sort of solidly. You've been progressive for a long time. It should be noted. This is not something that you are adopting uh, uh, sort of in, in, in the, as a recent trend. But isn't it that when you talk to workers that ultimately most progressive, all progressives are also workers as well? Or it, do you have to choose one or, or is no, it... No, I mean, you... you, 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 you the, the country, I mean, I think the best message to workers... You know, I mean, I, I have a lifetime F from the NRA. That means some people will maybe question me more. But it also means if I'm talking to people that might not agree with me on my support for 20 years for marriage equality or my F from the NRA or my support for women's right to choose, if I talk to them about their kids, they'll go on to school. If I talk to them about the cost of community college, talk to them about the overtime rule where, where if the president hadn't undone this, we 130,000 Ohioans who are making 40 or 50,000 dollars a year on salary, and if their boss calls them management, they don't get paid for overtime. They can work them 50 or 60 hours. We aren't paying attention enough to people. I mean, let me for the government shutdown right now. We all hear about the 800,000 workers that are furloughed or working without pay. There are also tens of thousands of workers in this country who are. Um, providing the food and doing the security and doing the um, and 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 uh, providing and cleaning the offices in the at the federal facilities, they're all contract workers. They they won't get their back pay. These are people making twelve and fifteen dollars an hour. I don't think the president ever thinks of this group of tens of thousands of workers, mostly women, often people of color, who work every bit as hard as you do on your show and your backstage crew and most of the people in the audience and have so little to show for it. And, and government's got to start looking out for middle class people and people who aspire to the middle class more than it does. You had a situation in... Um... You had a situation in Ohio where GM is uh, closing some plants. Uh, you've had an opportunity to talk to the president about this as far as what could he do. When you talk to him about issues like this, maybe how his tax plan affected uh, the GM uh, factories in your state, do, do you feel as though he understands you on a, on a policy level? Um, I think I'd start with, I think he's betrayed those workers. He came to Youngstown in the campaign and since the campaign saying, we're going to bring jobs back to this region. Uh, this plant, GM, after taxpayers rescued them 10 years ago, after the Trump tax plan gave them huge tax cuts, the company is, is shut, shutting down this plant, building more capacity in Mexico, doing stock buybacks for the executives. So I called the president, personally talked to him, maybe 20 minutes, and I, I said, you know, there is a provision in the law that says if you're producing, if you're manufacturing in Ohio, you pay a 21% tax rate. If you move to Mexico, you pay a 10.5% tax rate. It's sort of a 50% off coupon encouraging these companies to move. And I said to the president, um, you know, that's a real problem, and that's causing, causing these companies to move offshore. The president said, where'd that idea come from? I never heard of it. I said, Mr. President, it was actually in your tax bill. And it was in his new tax law. And it's, it's one of those things I've asked him to change because it, it means more jobs move offshore and more people in all over the country, not just the industrial Midwest, lose jobs. So you're saying he's not a policy wonk. Um, I, that's a well said. That's well said. accurate, yeah. He's not rumpled. He's not rumpled either, He's though. not rumpled. He's not rumpled or a policy wonk. Something in between yeah, might work something in between. Um, I also want to ask about, you know, obviously we're talking about these workers, and, and not just the ones that are furloughed, but as you mentioned, there uh, it's a domino effect that knocks down a lot of other workers as well. Uh, it seems as though the uh, the Democratic leadership position right now is you can't 
give in to the president on what he's asking for because he will continue to do it if you cave and give him money for this? Yeah, we've got we've to figure something out. I mean, fundamentally, Mitch McConnell, the leader of the Senate, has got to do his job. We, we, um, we passed something 30, about 30 days ago, 32 days ago. We passed a, a bill unanimously in the Senate to keep the government open. Uh, the, after the sort of Rush Limbaugh types uh, came out against it, the president changed his mind after promising to sign it, and the government closed fundamentally. And uh, our, our, the fear that we have, a lot of us have, is if the president, if Congress votes the $5 billion for the wall, now, this is a, probably a 25 to $30 billion project to, to build the wall. If we vote $5 billion now, the president, six months from now, will shut the government down again to get the next $5 billion. And you can't run a country where the commander-in-chief almost takes a perverse delight, as he kind of bragged, in shutting the government down. I mean, they're, they're, the, the term shutting the government down makes no sense to anybody in this audience and anybody in the country. I mean, we need to do our jobs. We need to show up to work like most people do in this country, and open the government and move forward. I, uh, I can only imagine how... Uh, I can't imagine that Washington, D.C. right now is a, a very exciting, uh, or I should say a happy place to be. Do you see... Is there optimism when you go out on your tour right now? I, I, I mean, are you feeling a hope from people? Well, I, I, I feel an optimism in the country. Uh, I think... I think that there's sort of too much anger coming out of the White House. There's, there are too many people running for office that sort of express that anger. And I, I think people look for a more optimistic, I mean, the sort of happy warrior, let's, you know, let's figure out how to do this together. Um, we've, Congress passed a farm, the Senate passed a farm bill that's a bill to help clean up Lake Erie and to provide food stamps and to develop rural areas with broadband and to help family farmers. We got 87 votes in the 100-person Senate. We can do things bipartisanly when Mitch McConnell or the president doesn't get in the way, and too many times that's happened. Well, I wish you the best of luck, and uh, I celebrate your optimism, and thank you so much for being here. Really appreciate it. Senator, share it down, everybody. Hi, this is Henry from Late Night. I'm here with Senator Sherrod Brown of Ohio. Good to be with you, Henry. Senator, it's such a pleasure. Mine too, thanks. It Look is amazing to, to have seen you walk through our offices. You've talked about every single person here. It's, just, it's, it's wonderful to see. Well, I, I was amazed. I, I met Connie, who is a nurse, uh -huh. and is, is um, kind of mentoring uh, an, another nurse, because mm -hmm. you have a nurse on duty, Yeah. because of the anxiety getting on this show and all that. I'm meeting a senator audience. today. Cool. It's very stressful. Yeah, it's cool. It's cool. I'm, I'm on Seth Meyers. That's pretty stressful. <laughs> so if you are feeling anxious, you can yeah, go talk yeah, to uh, Connie. I, I got Connie the nurse. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I was reading about you over the past few days, and you got into politics at age 22. How did you decide to get into politics so young, and what's it like being a 22-year-old legislator? Well, it's a long time ago, first of all. <laughs> I, it was an activist generation, as, as, as young people are now. I mean, this is, this is the millennials now are the most active generation we've seen, I think, mm -hmm. in decades. And they're not so much partisan as they are caring about climate change and caring about student debt and caring about marriage equality and civil rights and all the things that's what makes this generation so progressive yeah. and and you know with all the all the things older generations have inflicted on them far too high too, too costly to go to school um, the lack of really good paying jobs sort of the dignity of work that they haven't really enjoyed the way that some future, some former generations did, previous generations. So when you look at this kind of amazing activist millennial resistance that's kind of come up in the in the Trump era, do you think back to your activism well, when you were yeah, there? I, I was um, in high school, three of us, it was 
uh, the first Earth Day, and three of us in Mansfield, Ohio, organized this march. We had 700 people, so it's been a town of 50,000. It's a pretty big deal. We marched down the street carrying banners about Earth Day and environmental action. We didn't know the term climate change in those mm -hmm. days, but but we knew about uh, we knew about dirty air and dirty water and how important it was to to fight for the environment. And we get to the end of our march, and the three of us that organized looked at each other, and we forgot to get speakers or microphones and so we just walked away we didn't nobody it. no there's no there was no high school course how to do a demonstration that's right how to train for a march so we weren't ready <laughs> when uh we talk a lot about the resistance in the age of trump uh, a lot of people making phone calls marching knocking on doors what is the effect of that on you as a senator and your colleagues how does that kind of impact the work you guys do and how do you respond to that well i think that the pressure immediately the pressure on Trump from the Women's March. And then the next day when Trump, literally the next day, two days after his inauguration when he tried to deport all these people and there were demonstrations at airports where lawyers thinking back to law school, why they went to law, I'm not a lawyer, but I was so proud of that profession that fought back for people that didn't have a voice. And um, that that's that's the story of activism. I mean, mm -hmm. activism is the reason we have Medicare, the reason we have the student loan program, Pell Grants, the reason we have Social Security, the reason we have safe drinking water laws. And, and it, it's, it's activists who are volunteers who take to the streets or write their members of Congress or organize marches that really matters. You're wearing a pin on your suit. This is a canary in a little cage. Can you explain the importance yeah. of this? I know it's I know it's been with you yeah, for a long time. And it's, it's about activism. 20 years yeah. ago, the I was at a um, um, Workers Memorial Day rally to, to honor workers who were killed or injured on the job. And uh, I was given this pin. It's a depiction of a canary in a birdcage. The mine workers took the canary down in the mines. And the mine worker was on his own if the canary died. And he had to get out of the mines. In those days, a baby would live to be about 45 years old, uh, the, the life expectancy. And we live 30 years longer because of the activism that, that is symbolized in this pen. Medicare, Social Security, women's rights, prohibition on child labor, safe drinking water, food and drug administration, all the things that government has done working with activists and the private sector and local communities to, to help people live better lives. And when you walk around Ohio and talk to workers, talk to people who work in coal mines, what issues are they raising with you? Because the president talks about these workers in a very different way than than, than you would. Yeah, and, and Trump carried my state by almost double digits. He's and, mentioned that a couple yeah, times. And yeah, he does. He's mentioned that a few times, <laughs> including the first three times I met him. But there is a sense among a lot of Ohio workers at the GM plant um, in Youngstown where they're, they're planning, we're fighting against it, planning to close, um, to workers that struggle with child care um, and, and that, that simply can't afford child care to workers who are struggling for with, don't have the insurance they need, in part because of the attacks the administration on, on Medicaid. Um, there, there is a sense of betrayal from this president, and I think you're seeing that more and more among more and more sort of working class, middle class, and uh, people that are struggling in my state. Do you feel like those concerns cross party lines more than people would expect? Yeah, I mean, there are there are there are people that are just always going to be Republican that love Trump. And there are some that that uh, voted for Trump that are beginning that don't think of themselves as Republicans or Democrats mm -hmm. necessarily that are beginning to feel unease with. Not, not, I'm not saying they should second guess their vote. I'm saying that you need to you know, people are looking for something else. They see this betrayal. They want somebody that's on their side and. 
they look at the White House and they see a, a retreat for Wall Street executives. I mean, that's kind yeah. of what they feel the White House is becoming. Absolutely. You clearly have all this passion for helping workers, helping people of all stripes across Ohio. When you go to Washington and kind of raise those concerns, what types of pressures do you get? Who, who pushes back on legislation that would help people? Well, in their there, there, there's the lobbyists, there's the gun lobby, there's the drug company lobbyists, there are the oil companies. What does that look brothers. like? When like, well, we hear about it, what does it yeah. look like to fight well, against it, that? It looks like they, it's sort of the Republican Party base. And, uh, you know, the, the gun lobby doesn't spend a lot of time with me because I've got an F from them and I don't plan to. Here's a hard pass. Yeah, I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't plan to support them and in their opposition to any kind of common sense gun legislation. Uh-huh. So, I mean, I, I, I hear more from their members in Ohio um, than I do in their members in Ohio. Um, you know, or sometimes the gun lobby wants them to write and they, they actually agree with me on common sense mm-hmm. gun legislation. So um, it's a mixed bag, but you don't you don't. You don't necessarily see them. I, mean, I, I know I see them walk into the Republican leader's office, Mitch McConnell, and that's why we can't pass gun legislation after Parkland, after the Parkland massacre. Mm-hmm. So um, their influence is great. They don't necessarily talk to members like me who generally don't agree with them. Do those members that so openly take those kind of meetings, is there any sense of shame? Like, are they embarrassed? Do they do it behind closed no, doors? I, or is I that think just the there's, deal? That's there's just no DC. shame from Mitch McConnell. I mean, I think yeah. he, he calculates the gun lobby is one of the reasons he has a majority of Republicans. And the gun lobby spent more money to elect Donald Trump than they ever had in the past. So yeah. there is there is no embarrassment from them. Uh, maybe when they're home by themselves and they read about another gun tragedy, uh, that we just read about in Florida again. Maybe Today. they, yeah, maybe they, they have second thoughts, but they're not wearing them on their sleeve. Thank you for being here. Thank you for all the work you're doing. Thanks. We'll uh, it was a it. pleasure Thanks. Uh, Thanks, to meet Senator. you and uh, hope to see you again Good soon. See you. Thanks, Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Late Night with Seth Meyers airs weeknights on NBC at 1235, 1135 Central. Original music on the Late Night podcast is by the HE Band. Don't forget to follow the handle Late Night Seth on social media. And tell your friends to subscribe to the Late Night Podcast wherever they get their podcasts. It's all a lighthearted nightmare on our podcast, Morbid. We're your hosts. I'm Alina Urquhart. And I'm Ash Kelly. And our show is part true crime, part spooky, and part comedy. The stories we cover are well-researched. He claimed and confessed to officially killing up to 28 people. With a touch of humor. I'd just like to go ahead and say that if there's no band called Malevolent Deity, that is pretty great. A dash of sarcasm and just garnished a bit with a little bit of cursing. This motherfucker lied like a liar like a liar and if you're a weirdo like us and love to cozy up to a creepy tale of the paranormal or you love to hop in the Wayback machine and dissect the details of some of history's most notorious crimes you should tune in to our podcast morbid follow morbid on the wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts you can listen to episodes early and ad free by joining wondery plus and the wondery app or on apple podcasts